Welcome to episode 479 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, not even our pets. This should be a uh, great roundup. We've got some highly opinionated and very smart people. Michael Ellis, formerly with the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council, now a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Scott Shapiro, who teaches law and philosophy at Yale Law School and is a founding director of the Yale Cybersecurity Lab. And Nick Weaver, who is a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute, the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies, and interviewing as we speak for additional jobs on the academic job circuit. So if you're interested, uh, you better snap him up soon. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. So as we're speaking, this story is breaking, but I think we've gotten quite a bit of news released on it so far. President Biden has drafted up an enormous artificial intelligence executive order trying to seize the lead in thinking about the kinds of regulatory issues that arise from AI. Michael, I only looked at the fact sheets because I didn't see the actual executive order. Have you seen the executive order yet? No. The word used in all the reporting about the executive order is sweeping and that it's more than 100 pages long. Okay. But the text is not yet public as of the time of taping. Perhaps we'll have you know, more out there tomorrow. But We were never going to read 110 pages for this, so we were always going to use the, uh, the fact sheet that the uh, White House put out. And it had quite a bit in it. Yeah. I mean, it looks like there's going to be report writing and task force and advisory councils and guidelines. None of this is the force of law, of course. I mean, right. other than internal executive branch law, you know, the president directing his various heads of departments agencies to take certain actions within their departments. But there's a, a lot in here, much of which, you know, I think will will shape how the executive branch thinks about AI. But a lot of it even is even tangentially related to artificial intelligence. I and mean, there's immigration reform provisions in this executive right. order, according to press reporting, that they're you know, going to try to streamline visa applications for workers with skills that might be relevant to AI and maybe even also help on H-1B visas. I read that as part of a maybe a, a, an unspoken compromise between the White House and tech companies who are eager to bring in more foreign skilled workers using those visas and that in exchange for increased regulation, that that was the... Yeah, that they might get more people. Yeah, exactly. You know, this really feels like Obama style pen and phone governance, right? There, yes. There's talk in Congress of legislative efforts around regulating AI, but they don't seem to be going anywhere, at least not in the near term. So the executive branch takes the actions it can take. And, you know, a lot of that involves badgering the private sector, trying to sort of pressure them to, to take certain actions, even if the executive branch can't compel them to take those actions without um, without that legislation. This, this also looks like it's a big win for Lena Khan. Oh, yes. They practically crawled across the Constitution Avenue to to say, please, Lena, do what you can. Lena Khan was out there earlier this year, you know, saying that she was going to make this priority for the FTC. And and here we have the, as you say, the White House echoing it right back to her. So, you know, we can we can dive into the details once the sweeping 100 page plus document is out. 
But I think there's going to be a lot of work for the executive branch for, for months, perhaps years to come on this. Yeah. The one thing that I thought was interesting is this is a post-pandemic tick. They invoked the Defense Production Act as a way of saying, we're going to require you to share your safety test results. And the Defense Production Act, as people discovered during the pandemic, is this very, very broad grant of authority to the to the government in an emergency. Uh, and so this is not completely without teeth, but I agree with you. It's largely badgering, jawboning, and using procurement authority to, to tell people the things they ought to do. Yeah, the Defense Production Act is one of two like easy buttons for executive branch policymaking. Like, you know, don't know how else to solve the problem? Invoke the Defense Production Act, and then you can make people do what you want. But the truth is, it's actually, frequently, it is much harder to implement and doesn't yes. work out the way you think it's going to. But it is a tool that people frequently turn to, the other being IEPA, which I, I don't see in this one uh, yet, but who knows? Maybe maybe they'll work in uh, IEPA in some fashion or another. Yeah. Well, and plus procurement, right, which they can do, which is why it costs, you know, $500 to get a hammer at the Defense Department. Yeah, I agree with you. And there is the usual sorts of free riders on this where they say, really, because we're worried about unemployment, we should really stick up for unions. Let's let's do a whole bunch of good things for unions, which doesn't have much to do with AI, but uh, nonetheless is, uh, you know, it's what happens. It's leave no interest group behind policymaking. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I agree with you. It's um, it's bigger than I expected, and it will probably have more impact uh, than I originally suspected it was going to have. But it is, by and large, a package of things that they would like to say they have done, but can't exactly say they've done after they've issued the executive order. And a lot of this is going to be, get me a report on how, how you're going to do this in 45 or 90 or 180 days. Yeah. And, you know, query whether anyone ever goes back and, and, and checks whether all those action items and those reports have ever been done, right? Well, I, by the time they've gotten to 180 days, they're going to be in the middle of a campaign. And so lots of people will be looking at that to say, can we stall this until the election? Maybe the president's executive order won't mean anything on the day after the election. Yeah. Where, where it could have an impact as well, though, is also, you know, on the legislative front, because frequently if Congress does get around to legislating in this area, a frequent technique is to pick up what the executive branch has recommended and, and toss it into a statute. Right. So right. Because it's already done. Yes. Everybody's ox has already been gored. Even the people who didn't like it are resigned to it. So you can pass the bill more easily. I agree with him. So, Scott, the people that we have apparently decided in our headlines to call the AI godfathers have been urging a particular set of regulatory reforms, some of which, not too many of which, showed up in the White House proposal or executive order. I would describe these as an agenda of people who actually take existential risks seriously. And therefore, there are people who already hate it. But what are they proposing? You know, they're proposing things like AI companies should devote a third of their budget to ethical uses of their products. Things like they're proposing, I don't even know what this means, model registration with the government. So if you spin up a model or retrain it, you register with the government. I'm not quite sure what that means. Things like whistleblower protection, incidents reporting. They want the government to perhaps monitor model development and supercomputer usage. I mean, I just, it, it strikes me as 
just throwing everything you can and seeing what sticks. What, what is interesting is they, they are proposing what they're calling frontier AI, there to be legal liability for foreseeable and predictable harms. Like, I don't, if they're worried about existential <laughs> harms, I'm not quite sure who they're going to sue. Um, <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when AI, when our AI overlords control everything. But, you know, th- these are all people who are, seem to me well meaning. They're 22 people. It is very interesting. We've decided to call them godfathers, which is kind of, just it's just a strange word to use for you know Turing Award winners. Yeah. Um, but people like Daniel Kahneman and Yuval Harari, other Jeff Hinton, yeah, all those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see. They got a fair amount of press out of that. And there's some indication that people are listening to this. Although I haven't seen liability, I have seen registration proposals for uh, for AI models. I sort of like the idea that maybe you should be required to report. If your model starts behaving in an alarming fashion. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, they, they will behave in alarming fashions. That's like in their nature. So I'm not actually quite sure what the what the reporting requirements are. They, there are AI registries. Yeah. You know, like in, in the Netherlands, they post which of their uh, government software programs are using AI models. You know, people want to do things. The problem is, is that nobody really understands the technology and now they want to regulate it. And so you want to do something and you just don't know what to do. And so you propose various things and you hope people feel reassured by them. That's why I liked the mandatory reporting of alarming behavior is that we're not going to regulate until we have some idea what we're regulating, I hope. And alarming behavior is a good place to start if you're trying to figure out what should I be regulating. Now, I have to say, I think it's kind of alarming that AI can't do math. I ran into this myself when I did a list of countries and I wanted them arrayed according to what their size would be in 20 years, extending forward their populations, uh, their younger populations. And the AI put together a list and then it turned out it was wrong and it couldn't it couldn't figure out who was ahead of who. There's a remarkable lack of math capability. This this story was about inability to multiply, but there's something very strange about AI that can put together all those words so persuasively and can't do math. Actually, it reminds right. me of all the people I went to uh, law school with. <laughs> <laughs> right. Was it like a, a shape rotators versus word cells or something? Right now, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about LLMs, right, is that they're not symbolic reasoners and they, they're statistical reasoners. And in this blog post uh, of Gary Marcus, as he, he summarizes statistics, and it turns out like chat GPT and GPT are like, they get 5% of the math right. <laughs> um, but even 2 billion parameter models that have been trained on, you know, millions and millions of math examples are still only at 40% when it comes to 12-digit math. And so one of the things that you could, you know, you could infer from this is that scaling up, that is keep on throwing more and more examples, training examples, more and more parameters may have distinct limitations yeah. um, when it comes to symbolic. It just hides the fact that they don't know this because right. a lot of the time they get it right, but that's just right. statistics. 
Right, exactly. So on the one hand, you know, the the AI Godfathers start their warning by saying, you know, 2019 GPT-2 couldn't count from zero to 10. And then this blog post was also like, yeah, now they can count from zero to 10. It's not clear that they can add zero through 10. Um, <laughs> right. So, but anyway, you know, th that's the thing is like large language models do certain things unbelievably well. They do certain things really terribly. And the question is like, what kinds of applications are we going to use it such that they really leverage the good things? Does this mean that AI is like the uber Aristotelian? Um, <laughs> my ear, I'm very excited by this question. I'm not quite sure what you mean. Meaning, if you think of Aristotle as the ultimate kind of counter of discrete phenomena and assembler of discrete phenomena, as opposed to searching out the fundamental principles that underlie the phenomenon. Lovely. Yes. I, I would say that LLMs tend to be more Aristotelian. Symbolic, classical AI tends to be more platonic or Socratic. The way I look at it is all this ML is for when you need to build a pattern matcher, you don't have a bleeping clue what pattern to look for. When you're done, you still don't have a bleeping clue what pattern to look for, and it's okay to be wrong. Some fraction of the time, often hilariously. And this is a great concrete example of that, that, that with math, we understand the semantics. Once you understand the semantics, the large language model machine learning approach is the wrong one. It's only usable in problems where you don't understand the underlying semantics, because if you understand the underlying semantics, you don't need machine learning. Yeah, you can write code for it. Right, exactly. I would just say that like, there are these other tools, automated techniques, techniques in automated reasoning, which can handle terabytes worth of premises to prove theorems, SMT solvers, SAT solvers. And so like, computer science already has unbelievably good tools for dealing with math-like problems. You don't want to go to LLMs for that. The question is what happens when your LLM gives you an answer that requires that kind of reasoning. And that's what everyone's trying to wrestle with right now. All right. Well, and the other story that, that I saw was the guys who said, we developed a tool that artists can use to poison their data so that if it is scarfed up by AI for training purposes, it will actually teach the AI that uh, dogs are cats and cats are toasters. Scott, I saw that and I'm sure it works kind of, but I cannot imagine that it's the kind of thing that anybody's going to spend a lot of time doing. Well, you, you, I mean, I don't know whether what's, what happens when we move from surveillance capitalism to like training data capitalism, how people are going to respond to, to this. The program that you're talking about is Nightshade. It's well known that adversarial attacks on image recognition classification are, you know, are, are pretty good. That is, you introduce some noise, you can flip mm -hmm. something from like a panda to a gibbon, even though it looks just like a gibbon. So the question is whether, whether artists are going to care enough to poison their products. The, what's really interesting about Nightshade and uh, poisoning data in this manner is the way that it spreads. So if you poison a panda and the panda is used to generate another panda or a panda-like or a bear object. or a pangolin right it's gonna it's gonna carry over some of the poisoning into that and so it kind of spreads throughout the um throughout the image ecosystem so that 
you know, that could be pretty interesting and pretty, uh, pretty cool if what you're trying to do is you're trying to prevent expropriation of mass intellectual property to a few hands. Nick? This is also related to the Habsburg AI problem, that basically training your machine learning on machine learning output gives you bad failure modes. Right. And this is just one more reason why basically people going forward on the machine learning front are going to have to be looking for the low baseline steel equivalent of training data because the training data now is just so polluted with garbage. And this is just one other pollution mechanism that you have to worry about. And that is one of the biggest things that the AI industry is going to be facing going forward is they were successful enough at creating bullshit generators that there's now too much bullshit out there. Yeah, that's which is hard to believe. But yes, <laughs> I, 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 who, who, whoever, whoever locked down a copy of the Internet as of June 2021 is going to be a rich man so, sooner or later. Okay, one last kind of AI story is the cruise robotaxi that had a woman knocked in front of it, no fault of the robotaxi, but then after it had run her over, it dragged her to the curb so that it could obey its requirement to get out of the accident scene. And that has apparently led to the suspension of Cruz's uh, operations, I think, everywhere, at least their robotaxi operations. Nick, is this just an example of a corner case that you couldn't have possibly expected but now have to design for? Uh, I think it's more subtle than that. First of all, the corner case number one is the corporate relations, that it wasn't just that the autonomous vehicle in pulling over dragged the person 20 feet. It's that Cruz had video of it and did not report that to the DMV when they were going, this wasn't our fault. Right. They have the video that showed her getting knocked into the path. And they stopped it there, I guess, yes. as opposed to showing it be, her being And dragged. it wasn't yeah. until some other agency, a.k.a. San Francisco Fire, told DMV, you do know we have these drag marks going on. And so the DMV went from we're investigating to you're suspended statewide. And then Cruz, in response to the statewide, said, OK, we're suspending everywhere because, hey, if California DMV doesn't like you and California DMV and CPUC are very pro-robotaxi, then you've got a big problem. Seems to me they deserve to have to do that. I'm not sure it says much about how dangerous robotaxis are, though. That That is a pretty rare event. Yeah, but I think it's saying that there's a different problem with the robotaxis. There really needs to be a big red button on the roof that anybody can press, get in and put it under manual control. And take it over. Because yeah. that's that's the fundamental problem with these failure modes is really you need a human override and they're deliberately designing these things with no big red button on the hood. And it's not like the big red button on the hood would necessarily get abused. They're already getting traffic cones put on them. 
Well, but if you could open the door and jump in and drive it away, that it might get abused a little more. It's a carjacker's dream. Drive away yeah. something with a GPS tracker on it and a multi-billion dollar company behind it that's actually going to get response from the SFPD? Oh, I think you could hop in, toke up, spend an hour there, have sex and leave, and nobody would bother you. <laughs> I, I think that's what most of the carjackers in D.C. are doing these days. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, we're hearing more about the Google antitrust trial, but, you know, not a lot because the judge, in response to, I'm sure, not completely crazy uh, concerns about security or confidentiality, has kind of chopped up the public version of the trial so that it's really hard to tell how it's going from the point of view of the judge and the jury. Yeah, that's right. And as you noted, it's because of concerns that Google has raised about the confidentiality of information uh, that's part of the various witnesses' testimony and the trial exhibits. It looks like the Judge Beta in D.C. has put in place a new process for releasing exhibits to the public that, that will you know, allow a little more information to come out. So I, I think it's going to get better now. Now, we are, mind you, six weeks in. Uh, to the trial. So there's, there's a lot that... I think the, the entire government case has been put on, hasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. But uh, you know, there, there is also one big number that did come out in public last week, which is $26 billion. And that's how much it was worth to Google in 2021 to be the default search engine uh, in various browsers and on mobile phones. And the biggest component of that by far was Google's deal with Apple to be the default search engine in Safari on, on iPhones. Um, which uh, is supposedly 18 of those uh, $26 billion. So raises some questions, certainly, about why Google thought it needed to pay that much money to install their own search engine as the default if, as they're arguing at the same time, it's also the superior product that anyone would choose um, given the, the landscape. Yeah, I agree with you. That's an eyebrow-raising number when the argument is anybody can switch. The only reason that they're here is because they like the default. Well, if that's the case, you would expect that $26 billion wouldn't be necessary. It's going to have an impact on the trial for sure. But you know, uh, with respect to secrecy in the trial, you know, Google search engines are uh, a black box and you know, <laughs> opaque to the outside world. So maybe it's only fitting that the trial around Google search engines is also a little opaque to the outside world. Yeah. One of the things that got released was like a hundred slide show about how advertising works and how we tweak all these buttons. And I will tell you, I did not, I, got, I didn't get past the, like the fifth slide before I was lost, but it was an indication of how seriously and maybe how manipulatively Google has, has treated its control over how advertising actually works in cyberspace. Yeah, I think it's safe to assume there's a lot in those documents that have not yet been released that Google does not want the public to see. Uh, yep. Whether it's because it's damaging to its legal case or just outright embarrassing, right? There was a one email that did come up earlier in the trial that made it through Google's objections when one of their executives was comparing their search engine product to cigarettes and illegal drugs as a you know the only other two products that are that have similar margins, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like the only the only other thing that's profitable is what they're doing is uh, is cocaine essentially. So you know just a, some embarrassing stuff for Google. But there's also likely some information that's been under seal so far that's also going to be uh, pretty tough for them legally. Yeah. My sense of this is that Google, it was so used to being the good guy that it didn't even think of itself as potentially the bad guy until sometime around 2011. 
And so every internal document prior to that is likely to be unfortunate for Google. Yeah, that probably coincides with around the time they stopped using the don't be evil catchphrase in their marketing materials. Exactly, exactly. The greatest trick the devil ever did was to convince the world he didn't exist. Number two was convince people that don't be evil actually meant something. Yeah, you know, my baker's law for this is you'll never really know how evil a technology can be until the engineers who maintain it start to fear for their jobs. Okay, Scott, CISA had a little report out saying, hey, you know, our uh, our list of things that federal agencies really need to fix has had a big impact on what actually gets fixed. And some of the statistics were impressive in a slightly, you know, a narrow fashion. At least that's how I read it. They said they've been doing this for a couple of years. They've maintained a list for a while. It was a list of like a dozen things. You must fix this. You must fix that. These are being actively exploited and I want to see this fixed. And that list is now like as long as our arm, but it's still a an agenda setter. The, I'm not quite sure. The story says that there are 12 million known exploited vulnerabilities in the catalog. That, that can't is, be right, <laughs> I have to say. I, yeah, I, I, Right. It's just that that's what it says here. Um, okay. It was, it was a dozen three years ago, and that I knew it ballooned, but I would have guessed 10,000. Yeah, so including the remediation of over 12 million known exploited vulnerabilities over the past two years. So regardless of the numbers, and I agree with you, by the way, about the statistics are a bit strange to parse, but the basic idea of the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog is that CISA puts together a catalog of not just known vulnerabilities, but ones that have been exploited in the wild and has used its authority over federal civilian agencies to tell them that they need to remediate these within a certain period of time, like a three-week timeline. And so it says that this year alone, there's been 7 million remediations. And again, I don't know what that means, like 7 million remediations, and that the attack service has decreased 72%. You know, again, these are not, it's really hard. What you obviously want to say is we've had 72% decline in attacks, but like it, that, that's also not a meaningful number either. So, you know, it's it, it's like many things that CIS does. I mean, it's really smart. It's like makes a lot of sense. If you, ha- if you know the vulnerabilities that have been exploited in the wild, get your, get the people you have control over to remediate it. And it seems to be working in the sense that these vulnerabilities are being remediated. Ultimately, we probably will never know what the result is, but it seems that it's uh, a you know a good start. That's what I thought. When they say we've had a 79% reduction in the internet-facing key vulnerabilities, what I think they're saying is when we put something on the list as being exploited now, 79% of the instances of that vulnerability get remediated. Well, okay, that's good. I mean, that does not mean we are 79% more secure because more things are going to get added to this list. This is a list of the things you ought to be doing now, and there's always something you ought to be doing now. So yeah, I worry that this is a good idea, which is being actually used by private industry as well as a way of setting priorities, but which has been kind of overhyped in the we can't resist overhyping it way that government agencies have. Right. Although I just say that, like, I'm glad they're overhyping things like 
we know these are problems right. and people are fixing them. Okay, good. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I can tolerate that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So they, they, may, they may be over-heroizing what they've done, but what they are doing deserves to be celebrated. I agree with you. All right. Uh, Nick, if you were trying to figure out where the worst security failures were and wanted to exploit them, wouldn't you think Kaspersky would be one of the first places you'd actually try to break into and steal the information from? Yes, Kaspersky is the a number one or is a number one target for basically every major espionage agency but the Russians because the Russians just buy their way in. And so they are a target of very sophisticated attackers. And they have a write-up on their detection and analysis of a really sophisticated campaign targeting iOS zero days. The tradecraft and the like probably suggest that it was a, a five-eyes, three-letter agency. Um, yeah, could have been the Chinese. Or could have been a four-letter agency, five-eyes. Um, yeah. But the interesting thing is really just a, how subtle and clever the attackers had to be, but also how subtle and clever the defenders are. And incidentally, it looks to be that if you had advanced protection on, it would defang the initial exploit into the phone. Ah, uh, okay. Because they never did figure out exactly what the initial exploit yes, they is. Did. Oh, did they? they? Okay. They did after a fair bit of tricks, and it was a watch face file vulnerability. <laughs> so that's that's one of those examples of sort of iMessage supports way too many file formats and basically advanced protection on the iPhone turns them all off, um, uh, really right. reducing the attack surface. Yeah. So this is called Operation Triangulation. Well worth reading. It was it was a lot of fun. Uh, and the other story that's sort of like this is the story of the... Uh, wiretap that collapsed because the man in the middle had a TLS certificate and the certificate ran out and the cert service called up the people who were being wiretapped and said, hey, you, don't you want to renew this certificate? Not quite. So, okay. so what happened is this wiretap on a server in Germany, whoever did the wiretap did full man in the middle capability. So they were using Let's Encrypt as the certificate authority. And so the man in the middle issued a new Let's Encrypt certificate, because if you can man in the middle machine, you can get a Let's Encrypt certificate. Yep. This certificate then expired, causing errors. And so they, oh, they didn't actually call up and say, do you want to renew it again? No, but it gets better because... Let's Encrypt does certificate transparency. You can actually yeah. see every certificate that they've ever issued. So the victim of the wiretap, basically it's a Russian language forum hosted in Germany, was able to go back and see where the bogus certificates were issued. And that gives a upper bound on the time of the wiretap. And furthermore, because of the certificate transparency, in the future, I'm pretty sure Let's Encrypt is going to introduce some better tooling so that you could detect this automatically. So this is kind of a 
one-time only trick now that got blown because the Germans didn't uh, do their work and keep the certificate live. Your intervention suggests that what was suggested in the article, that this was because of the way it was done and the lack of stealth, it was probably something in which there was a court order behind it saying you will cooperate with this. Oh, uh, there has there had to be because it had to be a man in the middle right up basically near or in the data center. Yep. All right. Here's a story, Scott, that I love partly because I'm connected to it. But there is a um, an iron key USB drive with $235 million in Bitcoin on it or something like it. And the guy who owns it said, I, you know, I, I can't remember my credentials. And I've tried eight of the 10 tries that I get, and I'm afraid I'll lock it up. And this company called Unciphered came along and said, hey, we've read about you in the paper and we think we've broken Iron Key. We know we've broken Iron Key and we'd, we'd be glad to get your money for you. Yeah, it's a Andy Greenberg story and it's a, it's and therefore it's really well written and it's a really it's really kind of funny or not so funny if you're unciphered but basically the the per, the owner of this Iron Key S200 who had 7002 bitcoins on it, he erased two backups of the wallet and lost the piece of paper because he didn't do what security pros always do, as Nick tells us, which is keep it in their wallet. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Keep it. Keep the passcode in your wallet. And so they figured out a way of breaking the encryption on the on the thumb drive by reverse engineering the hardware by basically test taking off layer upon layer photographing it assembling a 3d model and kind of reading off the cryptographic code from the physical layout of the gates so this is amazing they seem to have cracked this type of thumb drive a uh, circa 2011 and when they contacted the owner of the thumb drive and therefore the Bitcoin, he was like, no, thank you. And they were like, wait a second, we could break this for you. And he's like, no, I already promised this to two other people, two other groups. And so when Greenberg tried to follow up with these researchers, it seems that one was never really in it. And the other, Naxo, doesn't seem to have the people who are particularly good at reverse engineering hardware so they're, they're, as they said, cracking Iron Key was one thing. Cracking the owner, Stefan, <laughs> turned out to be much harder. And so right now they have this technique. As the story says, they, they can pick the lock, but there's no lock to pick. Yeah. And so you said you were... I, I, have, I have been advising these guys for two or three years. I, in fact, if you look at the Wired article, which has a picture of people in the lab... And you look very closely. You... Oh, my God, that's you. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, that's OK. That's OK. That's funny. But I think this is going to work out very well for Unciphered. They got a lot of publicity about this. And lots and lots of people have said, you can get me into my iron. So <laughs> they, right. uh, they'll, they'll do all this right. May, this may, yeah, this may be this. Because according to story, there's about 140 billion dollars worth of Bitcoin locked in, locked up around the world, and so there may be lots of other locks to pick for them. And uh, you know, as a business model, I think it was Bruce Schneier who said, you know, security doesn't ever get better; it just gets worse if you don't change it, right? So the security holes get bigger, 
And that means that stuff that people have locked up that they can't get out is going to eventually it's going to yield to attacks. And these guys have really come up with some very sophisticated ways of attacking both hardware wallets and software wallets. And, you know, people are always willing to say, sure, if you can get me money that I don't think I ever will see, I'm happy to pay a portion of that back over to you. Right. I, I just imagine that, like, you know, in post-quantum world, we're just going to have this, you know, up the wazoo. You know, people are just going to, like, what pre-quantum cryptography can we could we break yeah. and then and that's why everyone's like trying to trying to beef up things for, for when that comes online so what's really interesting and i wrote about this really i think it's well over a year ago uh maybe two years ago for lawfare is these attacks on wallets are a lot like attacks on software of any kind you know if you find flaw in microsoft or uh, citrix you can call up the guy who designed it and he'll write a patch and send you a check. But for a lot of cryptocurrency, the people who provided the security are out of business, moved on to something else, just wrote the code and said, it's up to you whether you use it or not. And so a lot of the vulnerable wallets that are out there don't have anybody who can fix them. And so when you find a vulnerability, you've got this very difficult problem you want to tell the people who have the wallets that there's a problem with their wallet. But as soon as you tell one of them and it gets into the papers, people who have a lot of money and don't own the wallets start ginning up ways to break into the wallets. And then it's just a gold rush to get to get into the wallet first and trying to figure out a way to save that money for the people who actually put it in the wallet is very tricky. There's no easy way to do that. And that means that as these as these wallets fall to more sophisticated attacks, unfortunately, a few people are going to get rescued and then a lot of people are going to get ripped off. Yeah, that, that seems right to me. All right. Nick will be glad to undertake Treasury's new fascination with the connection between Hamas and cryptocurrency. Uh, Nick, is that real or is that just Treasury finding yet another excuse to be mean to crypto? Uh, yes and no. First of all, Treasury really needs to accept that they should be mean to crypto because, let's face it, the only revelations and innovations have been on the criming. It's unclear whether Hamas was really able to move that much money through cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that it flags is really important is that reportedly Hamas is starting to use Tether fairly heavily, which is a dollar-denominated stablecoin. Imagine a world where everybody had as many anonymous Swiss bank numbered accounts as they want. This would not be tolerated. Tether is literally Liberty Reserve, but with a blockchain combined with an 18th century wildcat bank and should have been shut down four plus years ago. And the notion that terrorists are using this and one of the people behind Tether has boasted that, hey, Iran should use this, might actually finally get the treasure to wake up and deal with what has been a blatantly criminal enterprise under the Liberty Reserve precedence since it was very founded. Well, and certainly this would be the time to do it. And you get the sense the Treasury is waking up to the opportunity it has. 
Okay, last topic before we jump into a special feature. Michael, 702, a lot of publicity saying Congress still hasn't done anything about 702 renewal and December 31 is coming up soon. But I have not seen any actual legislative language from any of the committees that are undoubtedly working on it. Have you? Nope. Uh, and it doesn't help that uh, the House was in chaos for the past few weeks. So you know, everything was essentially at a standstill there. And here we are. It's the end of October. There's no bill text out yet from the House or the Senate side. You know, the Senate, as it typically does, waits to see what the House is going to do first. And don't you think that's really smart here? Because it makes all sense in the world. Yeah. 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 The, the the limiting reagent here is what can get 218 votes in the House, right? Yeah. If, if you solve for that, then you'll solve for everything else. So the Senate is, is waiting to see what the House is going to do. But the House, which had talked about having bill text out even as early as like sort of late, late spring, they were talking a while ago, hasn't put anything out to the public. Now, there's there's in the reporting, there is there are some breadcrumbs as to what two different committees, the Intel and the Judiciary Committee, are working on. And they're about what you'd expect based on the press reporting that the Intel Committee is is working on a package, a package of reforms to take on some of the compliance failures that 702 and other parts of FISA have seen over the past few years. But the Judiciary Committee is going further and um, looking to impose a warrant requirement on U.S. person queries. Yeah, but that's all, all rumor mill grist right now. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to have to wait and see see what comes out of it. And I and and you know I haven't seen the new speaker Mike Johnson's give his position on this yet. But note that he was a member of the Judiciary Committee, so I suspect that he may. Uh, but you know he's also in armed services, right? So he's a guy who understands some national security threats. He's been hardcore conservative on a lot of things, but he hasn't made beating up law enforcement part of that. Although I think he's probably pretty comfortable with that. So my guess is. He's persuadable on this. And I guess Jim Jordan now has time to focus on it. Uh, that's, a, that, that's a plus, I guess, right? Uh, but, you know, I, I think those two committees have to, have to figure it out, and they have to figure it out quickly. Yeah. The, the odds of a, the authority lapsing, uh, I think, have increased significantly since. It's a worry. It's a real worry. And it was the 45 days we lost, or nearly 45 days that we lost to the leadership crisis, which we could have again, right? We're, unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with the budget before we get to December 31. And that could, that could kill off yet another speaker. Yeah. The, you know, the, maybe the only thing that 702 reauthorization has going for it is that it will follow on the heels of those other problems. So maybe yeah. everyone will be just so exhausted from battling over spending bills that, that they won't have any energy left for a 702 fight. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now I'd like to spend the, the last part of this discussion. I've got a couple of Quick hits, but we'll worry about that later. Talking about Scott Shapiro's book, Francie Bear Goes Fishing, which I got long ago and have never brought up. And I promised to bring it up sometime when Scott was on. So now we're we're ready to talk about it. I'll tell you what I think your book is about. I think it's an effort to teach people computer security and hacking by illustrating first principles through famous hacks that you have gone and unearthed the records for, mainly by going back into a lot of the legal proceedings that came after the headlines. And so it for people who remember the headlines, it's an education about stuff we didn't know about everything from the Morris worm to the DNC hack. And it's also a way of thinking about cybersecurity and attacks that 
I'm not sure could have been written just by a cybersecurity person. It's got to be somebody who has an appreciation for the broader principles. So that's what I think that the book is about. Uh, how close did I get? Um, and that was exactly what the book was supposed to be about. So thank you. <laughs> I mean, as I say in the introduction to the book, like the cybersecurity books are one of two types. They're either like eat your vegetables now or we're all going to die. And so what I just wanted to do was write a book that explained to people how the stuff works at a kind of at a basic level, but also do it in a way that people would tr would want to read. And so true crime is a kind of, it's a genre that a lot of people like, uh, you know, I mean, as attested to by the zillions of, of uh, legal dramas on television. And I was actually able, as you pointed out, I was able to get enormous amount of information, not just from, you know, publicly available records and the code base, but also just the, the legal records. I mean, there's just a lot of, a lot of evidence that people hadn't known that were in the documents. And so it was written for people who don't know anything about it, but hopefully that people who know, who have heard about the Morris Worm, who knew and uh, know about what Mariah's tell give them the backstory and the, the full um, the full download about what really happened and why it matters. So uh, before we get into that, I have to say you've got one of the best dedications I've read in a book. It's to my mother, Elaine Shapiro, for everything, especially that conversation on 110th Street. So you got to tell us. Okay. <laughs> So, so the way, okay, you know, it's very funny because I've been interviewed about the book millions of times. Like you're the second person to ask that question, <laughs> which is amazing because that would be the first question I would ask. So my situation was that I went to law school and when I graduated law school, my father, not, not ununderstandably thought that I was going to become a lawyer. And though I am a lawyer, I did take the bar and pass it. I went to philosophy school. I went to get a PhD in philosophy, and my father was really unhappy about that. Again, I, I kind of get it, but I wanted to be a legal philosopher. And so we have a very strange system in the United States where we do legal hiring. Now it's almost no more because of COVID, but there was this big convention in Washington in the Marriott, the American Association of Law Schools, and you would go there and you would go from, from hotel room to hotel room. S sitting on beds, right? It just... Yeah, it was it really it was so crazy. You would go in and, and you would sit on a bed and, and interview. I mean, it was really, really uncool in that way. And so what happened was the night before the AALS, I was sitting with my mother in a car on 110th Street. And I was just saying, what happens, mom, if I don't get a job like dad? It'll be the biggest I told you so ever. <laughs> and she said, if you don't get it this year, we'll be here next year. And, you know, that was like permission to fail. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's what you want from a yeah, mom. Exactly. It was exactly what you wanted. You wanted to be told, don't worry, you can fail. And it turned out I got a job, thank goodness. And so, like, the book was, an, you know, like, I'm going to try this book. <laughs> I hope it doesn't fail. At least my mother will still love me. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah, you know, you've done all right. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's not like it's not real law, but it's <laughs> no, 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 I know. But I mean, you know, it's, it's not that embarrassing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> OK, so what's your favorite story out of all of these in terms of illustrating something that you might otherwise not have quite gotten? People might not have quite seen through these stories. 
Well, you know, it's so funny is that like, you know, because I lived with each of these things. So it's like saying, which is my favorite yeah. child? You know, the Morris worm is just magic as a story. And like, it's a, it's an it's an awful story if you're Robert Morris Jr. But like, you know, just for just remind people, it's a 22 year old grad student who releases a self-replicating worm onto the Internet, thinking he's engaged in a science experiment. This is 1988. And he goes to dinner, comes back and he realizes he's crashed the whole internet and he has to tell his dad that he's done this and his dad was the chief cybersecurity scientist for the NSA. Yeah, I worked with him. Um, so I, I uh, yeah. oh, 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 you worked with Bob Morris? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, oh, no, okay. It, was, it was awful. Uh, it, it was just awful. And and, and you, very easy for this to happen at that time because people, they didn't realize the consequences of what they did and they didn't, they thought they were just screwing around and, and then you know, then there's the usual tension between dad and the son. But yes, that story always spoke to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like imagine doing something that like, first of all, you're on the cover of the New York Times. You're like in every single nightly news program. And that's when people used to read and watch the nightly news. That was like how people, right. you know, got, got their news. And he thinks that he's going to be like yelled at by all the Unix administrators that whose life he's he's ruined. But like, in fact, the feds are like, we just passed this thing called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We are going to prosecute you. And he fights it. He loses. He does not go to jail. But his friend... Paul Graham is the Paul Graham who who starts Y Combinator and is now a multi-gajillionaire. And in a way, Paul kind of eggs him on a bit mm -hmm. um, to write this thing. He wants him. He he wants the worm to be his thesis, and gets really mad at him <laughs> because now he ruined the experiment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's because it, you read it in the transcript. So I have the transcript that Gail got for me, and the prosecutor says, "What did?" you say when he told you that he crashed the internet i said you idiot now we'll never be able to do this again um so i mean the whole the whole, the whole thing's an amazing the transcript it was remarkable that nobody had mined that transcript before you it was great yeah well yeah because it was up in syracuse and mm -hmm. somebody and somebody needed to go and copy it and you know Yale Law School was very generous in funds. I got it. So if anybody wants it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share it with them. And what's he doing now? He's, he must be 40. Well, I think he's way older than okay. that. Um, I think he's in... A, oh, yeah, I guess that's right. He must be 50. Yeah, yeah. Be almost 60. He's a, he's a tenured professor at MIT. And, you know, he's, he does systems work. And he's, you know, he's kept his nose... Well, all these years, and he doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, I know. Tried contacting him, yeah. Nick? He's about a few years older than me. One of the things that I find personally amusing is that a lot of his work since then was on networks in terms of building efficient networks. And when he presented some of the earliest distributed hash table work at SIGCOM, my reaction as I, in the audience was, oh, cool. He's gone from building weapons to building targets. That login proof of search is login proof of infection time. <laughs> so this reminds me, Cliff Stoll wrote the Cuckoo's Egg, which, which all of us read when most of us read 
to, when we were first getting into this, it was a wonderful book about a physicist who discovers that they're being hacked by East Germans because of a 50 cent discrepancy in the billing. He doesn't want to talk about it either. I've contacted him for some reason, and he is completely out of computer issues and sells, I don't know, tea cozies or something. He will refuse to give speeches about cybersecurity. But if you want to talk to him about his handicrafts, uh, he's glad to talk. Specifically, he does hand-blown Klein bottles and Klein bottle cups. So if you want a Kleinstein, talk to him. There we go. There we go. Okay. I knew it was something, but T-Cuz he was wrong. (laughs) Yeah, but I would just uh, agree with you that that Cuckoo's Egg is just a phenomenal book. Yeah. Paris Hilton also, you managed to get more out of... Paris Hilton's woes than I would have expected, basically talking through the vulnerability of the cloud, as I see it, and what that teaches us about cybersecurity. That was, again, everybody knew Paris Hilton, she's been embarrassed, and that was the end of it. Nobody went back and said, how did that actually happen? If I had to say the second favorite, it was definitely the Paris Hilton hack, because you know, up until the time, up until two weeks before the book went to the publisher, nobody actually knew how her cell phone was hacked. And so I was able, and it took me four years to contact Cameron LaCroix, who was the one who, who did it for many, many, many reasons. But I got him two weeks before, and, and I found him through LinkedIn, of all places. <laughs> um, um, and, and because, get this, What he did on his LinkedIn page, he put all the stories of his hacking on it. And I remember saying to him, you know, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. So I want you to know this is not legal advice, number one. Number two is I give job advice to students. And again, this is not job advice because I don't even, I barely know you. But let me just say that I don't think this is a good idea to put this on your LinkedIn page. And he said, I wanted to show people my skills. And I said, yes, you did. You showed them <laughs> your skills, but in the wrong way. And so he has taken them off. He, he, I think he's a, he's a person who, he had a very hard life, very hard childhood, went through lots of different phases. And now he's in his 30s. He seems to have gotten his life together. And when I found out about how he actually had hacked the, the cell phone, it was somewhat well, I wouldn't say disappointing, but it was so easy to have, to do yeah. that everyone else's theory about how how he did it turned out to be just like silly, silly wrong. I mean, it was just like some very basic authentication error. But still, the, the story of cybersecurity in a way is the story of the development of the internet. And so telling the Paris Hilton hack was in a way telling the story of the migration to the cloud and how the mystery of how anybody could hack the cell phone of like the most famous person in the world who's surrounded by paparazzi constantly turned out to be, well, the data wasn't on her phone. It was in the cloud and they were able to breach, you know, web pages. So one of the things that I really like about cybersecurity is it has floated to the top a whole bunch of people who have habits of mind and talents that otherwise you would never have recognized. They never would have made a living doing this. The woman who uh, who outed the Dark Avenger, whatever it was, Sarah Gordon, uh, again, uh, raised in a miserable childhood and no particular credentials, but got interested and 
had that combination of stick to and total focus that was necessary to succeed in this area. And it's a, a now a whole professional cast of people who do that. And it's kind of nice. It upsets the usual credentialism of our society, which is really overdone at this point. Oh, absolutely. About the credentialism. I mean, what matters in cybersecurity is like how good you are. What do you know? How good you are? What what have your past accomplishments been? Not what certificates you've been and exams you've managed to sit, take and pass. And the thing about exploitation is it requires people to think in not ordinary ways and usually not ordinary people think in not ordinary ways and i absolutely i love cybersecurity people not only because ultimately what matters is their skills but also they tend to be like academics in the sense that they have relatively high standards and and are like academics inappropriately invested in their own work <laughs> um, um, and, and I just, I just, I just love that. You know, they'll just talk your ear off uh, about what they're interested in, and you know, that's that's my job too. So I, I quite love the community. Okay, well, the book is Fancy Bear Goes Fishing: The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks by Scott Shapiro. Definitely worth getting. It is a take on cybersecurity you won't find from anybody else. Uh, and it includes Scott's uh, good sense of humor. So, Scott, I'm glad we got to talk about this. Just to finish up, two stories that I promised I would cover. The U.S. has dropped its digital trade demands at the WTO, which I think is good. They had been trying to get the rest of the world to agree that you couldn't have data lockdowns inside the country, that that, that was a violation of free trade. It is. It's improper. But we lost that fight and we should stop pretending the only people that that was persuading was to persuade U.S. policymakers that they shouldn't be complaining about data exports to China. And it wasn't doing a very good job of that. So uh, this is um, USDR surrenders to reality. And for those of you who followed last week when we talked about Carolyn Cool and the decision that it was possible to continue a federal lawsuit against social media for harming children through addicting them, that was just the first robin of spring. There has now been a deluge of state cases making pretty much the same argument. And uh, my bet is that Carolyn Cole's opinion, which opened the door and said Section 230, First Amendment, not going to prevent this lawsuit from going forward, is going to have a few more imitators. Uh, so we'll be talking about those cases, I predict, for the next year. All right, Scott, thank you very much. That was terrific. Nick, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, if you've got things to say, send them to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or leave a review. This has been episode 479 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. There's something very strange about AI that can put together all those words so persuasively and can't do math. Actually, it reminds me of all the people I went to uh, law school with. <laughs> right, right. <laughs>